Welcome to season don't you know two of Black Folk Gene Therapy. Don't you know your sister's your lonely. Don't you know there's babies crying. Don't you know your brother's dying. Greetings, I'm Dr. Anthony Smith of Alashe Center for Enrichment, and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy, where we endeavor to challenge you to think critically about your mental health and overall wellness. Our goal is to inspire you to align your actions and values so that you might live your life fully 86,400 seconds every single day. We do this in part by asking questions and raising issues that you may not have previously considered. Ultimately, we encourage you to do those things that help you to live your best life consistently, always working towards balance. want to give a brief introduction, brother. How you doing today? Doing well, man. It's exciting to be here, to be a part of this conversation on what we do. Okay, good, good. So as we kick this off, I want to start off by getting to know you a little bit and say a little bit, if you will, about why psychology? Why did you choose to endeavor along this path? You know, the journey to understanding human functioning uh, for me started with a personal uh, issue or concern that I had with one, a relative, and secondly, a neighbor. And I noticed that they would have these moments of of uh, uh, different behavior, I won't I won't, won't call them bizarre, just different behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing about what happened to uh, my relative, and he'd gone to uh, uh, grad school, and he had tried to stay up all night to take. So he took some medication, and this is how he was uh, having these bizarre behaviors that never went away. And I always wanted to figure out how to not to be like that. And so that was, uh, that was the, my, my pathway, was to understand how the mind and the brain function. Uh, part two to the narrative was that I had another friend of mine in childhood whose father had this beautiful artwork in his house. And he was, uh, he was from Haiti. And I remember seeing Dessaline and, and, and Toussaint L'Overture. And I remember seeing all of this beautiful artwork in his house. And I said, well, if I didn't want to have artwork in my house like this, I need to do what he does. So what did your dad do? Well, your dad is a doctor, okay. So what kind of doctor? He said, well, my dad's a gynecologist. So I looked at what a gynecologist was. It's like, oh, no, nah, I don't think I want to do that. But I do want to become a doctor. So you put those, those two motivations together. That is the idea of understanding the African aesthetic uh, in one space and understanding the mind. And it, it becomes this nexus of I, where I go to uh, college and the major that I select is psychology. And it wasn't until I got into grad school that I began to recognize the significance in perspective in psychology. I think it was just simply the, the vanilla construct of psychology and whatever we learned from the European psychologists, that was psychology and that's where it ended. Uh, but it was not until I got into graduate school in a very racially uh, charged space uh, of Texas A&M University that uh, I began to recognize that perspective and culture was essential. And it's, a, it's odd that I would go there to learn about the, the, the value of culture come from HBCU, but I, I never had to think about my blackness at, at HBCU at Graham State University because that's what we were. I mean, that, that was, it's all us. But it wasn't until I became the magnified other uh, in the sea of, of uh, whiteness, I existed. And when they asked me, so what do you think? 
and I didn't have a perspective in psychology in these graduate courses. I was in the doctoral program. Mind you, I was doing very well in the program academically, so it wasn't a problem of, of academics, but when they asked me about perspective, and then so I had to think about what is my perspective? And so at what happened in, in, that, in the context of, of all of that, I shared an idea, a thought, and they told me, well, how do you know? And I remember the idea was, um, I can't go in my community asking them, so how does it make you feel? I remember that vividly, right? And they're like, well, how do you know? And they were so offended. They, the students and the faculty seem, seem to be so uh, offended by this statement. And it was at that point that I recognized the necessity to back up my propositions with resources and references. And so I began to study, uh, delve into multiculturalism, uh, which, is a, which is an anomaly in and of itself, but the idea of multiculturalism. And then I began to look at uh, African-centered thinkers. And I came across Dr. Naeem Agba. As a matter of fact, my first semester in, in grad school, he spoke at a nearby university. And his first question to me was, uh, are you a member of AB side? Remember his first question. I mean, it, it's like, it wasn't even, how are you doing? It's, are you a member of AB side? And so <clears throat> I began to look at AB side. And then I began to hear about these various thinkers uh, like Dr. Wade Nobles, uh, Dr. Uh, Amir, uh, Lena James Myers and others. And I began to delve into uh, Ivan Van Sertma and uh, Leonard Jeffries and uh, Malefi Asante. Afrocentrism was, was uh, the, the monarch of the day for us. And I began to really understand that perspective was powerful. And yeah. so when, then I returned back to class and I would say, according to Dr. Naim Magbar, and I would throw this out, or according to Dr. Jawanda Kanjufu, and I could say the sky was 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 green after that, right? It didn't matter because they'd be so busy trying to figure out, well, who's Kanjufu? What is that? So I began to come into this idea of the notion of, of power and identity. And so this is then how we arrive at the position of not just simply psychology, but understanding human function within an Afrocentric worldview. Okay. There's a couple of things I want to break down a little more in what you've said so, so thus far, which I find very interesting. The first being, being at an HBCU, did you have a sense of Black psychology or the need to have a perspective centered in that, um, going through the psychology classes at Grambling? Um, because you talked about going to Texas A&M and just, you know, being overwhelmed by <laughs> what you were experiencing um there so what was what, what's your take on that well it was not a grambling that i got a perspective mm -hmm. uh, of black psychology or black thought in psychology it wasn't very much black thought but i'm not quite sure i would have been embracing of it i remember there was one brother on campus who was into Marcus Garvey and it, and it was all that. And he was like, man, this dude is just over the top with all of this, 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 this black stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right, he was radical, like, what is wrong with this guy? So I don't think I would have really embraced it. As a matter of fact, that was a French instructor who kept trying to tell us about the, the wonders of learning French because there's some Francophone African countries. And it was like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Right, you know, but, but you know, who's, who's thinking about Africa? Right. So it was so even though I, I say that it wasn't there, uh, I'm not how I'm not sure I would have 
um, embraced it. But at the same time, the real challenge is there was nothing to create the appetite for it. Right, right, right. And so, so I, th I think that's the real challenge. So that HBCUs really are not bastions for that type of information because they're trying to simply conform to the Western norm of education and therefore mimic them and, and exclude our genius in the process. Okay, so we're gonna bring that forward eventually. I wanna talk about what you're doing differently to create the fertile ground for the, the young people who are like yourself that you're now having the ability to influence and giving it to them in a way that they can take it and be much further ahead of the game than you or I were when we were having a similar experience. But before we get to that, um, so let's go to grad school. You're in this program at Texas A&M. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people about this concept of uh, for lack of a better term, imposter syndrome, being in a space where you're the only and feeling like you have to um, rise up to a certain level to fit in. Uh, what was your experience being a Black graduate student at that place? If you could unpack that a little more and speak about being able to come into your truth. I know that's about the time you, you did start going to Black psychology. I think that's when you and I met, as a matter of fact. Um, and and then begin to have a community that could nurture you in a way that builds you up. Um, you know, the, I, I think about the meeting you and I came in the context of a course of of the history and systems of psychology, and Dr. Ludi Benjamin, who is heralded with as being one of the major heavy hitters in in the history of psychology. Uh, as, as, as an instructor of such, he had a book. Uh, the book was called Even the Rat Was White. Mm -hmm. And so I had the uh, audacity to contact uh, someone at Southern Illinois University, uh, Carvindale. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's uh, the connection became through Adi Sajamo that, uh, that we uh, uh, know, but also it was reaching out to the author of the book. Dr. Guthrie, mm -hmm. that linked us together because when I reached out to him, he said, well, I have a student. Right. And I think that was our connection. And mm -hmm. then we go to Arisa. I think that was another connection that we, that uh, we made. Right. I forgot and, about that. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and so I reached out because I was, again, in this space uh -huh. of finding myself and realizing that there was more to psychology than what I was learning or, or had learned. Mm -hmm. And so I, so I didn't know enough to be afraid to call these people, right? It's like, you right. know, like, I mean, you, you, you just call Dr. Guthrie. Hey, look, I'm gonna call, hey, man, look, right, let's right. go. How do I do this? And that's how we connected. And again, the idea of- He was of real good. He was real good about, you know, mentor, as, as most of our Black psychologists are, they, like, they really take that as a, um, a, a mm -hmm. part of what they're supposed to do and have told us that we need to be doing it as well, you know, and give continuing that that um, line, and so I take that very seriously, mm. and it's part of the legacy that they've imparted into me. So, yeah, I, re I remember that, and, and um, you know, that even the rat was white is definitely something that uh, I would encourage our listeners to get because a lot of the things in that book are still relevant today. You know, I hear people talking about drapetomania, 
right? Mm -hmm. And he he documented that in that book uh, and talked about the you know the 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 ludicrousness of uh, somebody being enslaved, wanting to be free, mm. and that being a disorder. Like, mm -hmm. how ridiculous is that? <laughs> but the people who were in charge made that a disorder. And we can right. get into a whole conversation about the DSM what, five now. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we'll save that for later. <laughs> so. And that was how the light came on, right? That light, the light came on from those conversations, uh, uh, listening to the elders, meeting up with uh, people within my age group, mm -hmm. uh, grappling and struggling with some of these same issues. And so Texas A&M had, uh, had tradition and still has tradition. They don't have, it was, it was all male school at one point. Uh, it uh, had a tradition of a military, a quasi-military, kind of a, one of a better example, Boy Scouts, uh, uh, paramilitary kind of a feel to it. Mm -hmm. And so when you enter into the Corps of Cadets, you enter with a, uh, a uniform and the bottom level uh, freshmen, uh, the Corps turds, as they are called, wear black belts. And when you become an upperclassman, you wear a white belt. And I started looking and thinking about perspective. Mm. And I thought about what is what are they being conditioned, right? This is this is all this conversation, the psychology, mm. to begin to see in color and colorism. And then I come across Dr. Uh, Francis Cress Wellstein's book, The yes. ISIS Papers, uh -huh. and about the idea of the games, uh, the the, the the multicolored uh, uh, pool balls and the right. ultimate clash between the black and the white ball. Mm -hmm. And I began to examine things around me and I was working with athletes. So I figured out this is where I could make an impact on campus and uh, maintain sanity in this graduate program is by working with student athletes. And so I developed a program for student athletes to achieve academically. And so this program was, was implemented and it was there that, um, I came across a sister who loved to read, but when she came across ISIS papers, it was like, this is, this, this is just too much. So she gave the book to me, I read it, and I began to watch things about around football. And of course, she mentioned an idea in, in the book about the big brown ball testicle and the small white balls and so forth and so on. And I looked at the referees and I realized that there was one referee and uh, there were all subordinates ar uh, around him. And so the referee had a white cap and the subordinates had black caps. And so I went back to the black belt and the white belt. And in martial arts, it's the exact opposite. And I began to look at tradition in Yale's and, and they don't have cheerleaders, they have Yale leaders and how they would say the same Yale year after year over and over and over. And I watched how they were indoctrinated into this tradition, this culture of who they were. And then I began, I began to ask the question, do we have that as a people? And what is the psychology behind this? Mm -hmm. And it was in those moments of beginning to analyze certain things that I began to recognize the beauty of our African anti Blacks. And I moved from multiculturalism, where I, I said it's, it's an anomaly, because in multiculturalism, it is, it is the cultural other that they're talking about. So it is, it is white culture and everyone else. Mm -hmm. So we look at uh, Asian, uh, Asian, Asian American culture, uh, Latinx, uh, African-American, right, uh, Native American, but, but they are not considered multicultural. It was in Dr. Guthrie's book where he looked at the divisions of the races. He talked, he highlighted those, and I thought about, yes, if it was true multiculturalism, 
it will be Polish, Polish American, Irish, Irish American, German, German American, right? It would be all of those groups, mm-hmm. and then it would be multicultural, but it's not, it's the cultural other. And mm-hmm. so that takes us into Dr. Mirba Ani's work about uh, Jerugu, right? That, so, so identifying that it was whiteness and everybody else. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we go back to the title of the book, Even the Rat, mm-hmm. right? That right. that even the rat in experiments. And so I said, well, dang, that's deep because I don't remember seeing any rats uh, when I went to the urban area that were white because it couldn't survive right. in that space, right? But I went to the laboratory and that was a normative. So even, even do- a regular naturally occurring rats are, are inferior for research. And I said, man, this is some 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 heavy stuff. And then we unpack, I go, of course, blackness and support and uh, coming up with topics. And I'll tell you this, uh, that in this same program around the same time, I came up with this uh, novel uh, construct. How about this? That racism was a mental disorder. Okay, so (laughs) imagine that one. Uh, But the idea that racism is is mental disorder. So the professor said, oh, so you're going to write a paper about racism and its impact on blacks. I said, no, I'm writing a, a paper on <laughs> racism as a mental disorder, as, as, as those who can hold diametrically opposed views and remain sane. And you right. can't do it. It's, it's impossible. You can't live in a space that says that God loves everybody. Uh, and I call the sepfo clause, right? Except for them. Right. Uh, except for them, uh, right. Uh, all men are created equal, except for them, right? You cannot live and be sane. Uh, right. In that, at the same time, and I had a a, a, a guy I was in elementary school with. I was only a black male in this elementary class, and this and, and this guy Barry Robertson called me a nigger. And all the white kids said, "Ooh, you know." You I mean when kids say, "Ooh, it's bad," <laughs> and uh, and I didn't know what nigger was, but I knew once my cousin heard about it, he said, "If I call you nigger again, you better kick his." I said, "Okay, so nigger must be pretty bad." So then I began to socialize about nigger and whites and and racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward to. Uh, uh, 11th grade and uh, Barry Robinson and I come back together again happened just, just, just the way life worked uh, because we went separate separate spaces came back to this high school uh, far away from where, where we both started off and he was there and um, it's a part of his story I, I won't go into but his girlfriend he had bought these these valentine bags for his girlfriend and he had bought several of them and uh, somehow we didn't go to school on the day that they were to be delivered. And we had a delay because of ice and snow in Louisiana. And so we went the following day and uh, Barry committed suicide over the weekend. And nobody knew about it until Tuesday because uh, the weekend, because we didn't go to school on that Monday. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And so I remember thinking uh, when I got to graduate school that he was trying to have these views in his head. What do I mean? Well, eventually the elementary school began to have more blacks to come in. He befriended the blacks, but still would taunt black folks. So he he befriended the largest black male in our class. And so he would taunt everyone, but he would then hide behind this big black guy who was so happy to have this white boy as a friend. Mm. When he got to high school, he had the same thing. He had these conservative skull dipping, you know, a, a, a tobacco dipping snuffs, uh, uh, spitting goat rope, boot roping uh, friends. And then he had these black folks that he was cool with. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he had a girlfriend that was 
white but had a buttocks <laughs> so it was it was it was like he had the he had the white girl with the black behind was always the always the moniker mm-hmm. and the reality is that he was running between these two spaces all of his life and i'd suggest that part of the issue is that he couldn't reconcile the challenge among other things and i don't i don't know his true story uh i don't i don't i never got to talk to barry much uh just remember that experience in in kindergarten and later in high school, we happened to connect in the same high school. And I thought about when I got to grad school, how do you remain sane? Right. And so I said, racism is, is a mental disorder. And that set me on the pathway that uh, we are on right now. You know, I, I've often thought about that concept, not in the way you framed it, but um, when I read these books or watch these movies or even observe the way, when you think about the period of, enslavement when white babies would literally be suckling at the breasts of black women. How can you in one hand say these people are savages, they are the scum of the earth, but then you have your children getting their nurturing and and, and their care and their, all of their sustenance from the very same thing that you hate. That's that cognitive dissonance. That's what you're talking about. Like that's a, it's your brain cannot make sense of that. You have to just ignore that because it does not make sense. And so it is a disease. I agree. <laughs> and, and we can bring that forward to today, right? That's right. That's right. Um, I, I, I uh, tweeted something out the other day because I'm watching these coaches, Dabo Sweeney and um, Saban and, you know, Tuberville is running for um, senator. And they, oh, I love my black athletes. I love them. How can you love the very people that you are supporting policies that would kill them? Like if they weren't running up and down the field for you, the things that you are supporting would literally kill them and their family and those that look like them. How are you going to say you love them? Those two things don't go together. That's such a disparate concept. And yet they parade behind this love of God and love of their love of their players. Yes. Like that's a disease. That is that's a disease. And we need to study it some more. That's it. <laughs> that's it. She was so offended at me for wanting to write that paper. And I wrote it anyway. And I didn't get an A on the paper, but it was damn good. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't stopped. Even that class I, I connect, I contacted the, you and Dr. Guthrie around is around uh, mental testing in blacks mm-hmm. in World War II. Mm-hmm. And I was writing about the insanity of the measurements. How are you going to talk about somebody being illiterate and destined for infantry because of your exam that was biased? Right. And so I didn't get an A in that class either. Uh, but it, it, it shaped my positioning. Mm-hmm. But then I said that here you have a test, the Army Alpha Army Beta test, the first intelligence test utilized in this country to determine infantry. And 
officers mm -hmm. and it's biased. And the people that are failing this test, so to speak, or re get re re reaching these lower level scores are black folks who are being placed on the front lines. The very folks that you had working, cooking, cleaning behind you. Now you don't want to deal with them. Enslavement is over. You found someone else to, uh, uh, or to mistreat. And so you put them on the front line. And the question then is, is psychological test in the form of genocide in that, con in that context? Mm -hmm. And the reality is yes. Mm -hmm. If it is put in a certain population in harm's way to be annihilated, that is genocide. Mm -hmm. Let's fast forward to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. As soon as it was discovered, allegedly, that it was more aggressive, more deadly among black and brown people, it was go back to work, open back up the country. Mm -hmm. Same construct, genocide. These folks don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. How are you gonna mistreat somebody, beat their behinds, then tell them to go inside of a house and cook for you? Right. What? That makes what no sense. <laughs> you got to be crazy as hell, right? You know, you know what they could do? <laughs> like, why would you do that? Yes. So these are the, that's, that's a mental disorder. It is. Mm -hmm. That is a mental disorder. And we don't study it like that. Right. We don't study, we have no, what, what kind of people would, berate you after you invent something or create something that makes their lives better mm -hmm. and then stick their name on it. Oh, no, 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 get this one. Knowing that the people of Egypt were brown people, Africans, but you reimagined them with blonde hair. That's in, come on, man. If I set up and I drew myself as a child, with blonde hair, mm -hmm. I'd been I'd been I'd been in a mental health hospital. What's wrong with you? You don't have blonde hair. No, right. that's me. No, you no. But they do this this insane stuff, yes. right? The birth of a nation. The first movie ever aired in a, a, a screen in the White House mm -hmm. about what happens when black men go free had no black man in it. <laughs> they, right? Think about this. They painted themselves black. That is crazy. Yes. They the whole the the art of entertainment in this country was white men in black face. Mm -hmm. Right? The people that you hate the most become something that people will parade to and pay a top dollar to see. Wait, whoa, wait. It's one thing to make fun of somebody, right? But to have that as your highest grossing form of entertainment speaks to a mental instability. And we're asking the question, what, what's wrong? What's going on? Yes, th this is some crazy stuff. But if we don't ever ask the question, if we don't begin to analyze, use our own skills and abilities as Dr. Um, um, oh God, psychopathic uh, personality disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Dr. Cambon. Cambon 
but he was a student of, of Cambon. I mean, Cambon was a student. Oh, man. This is terrible. But anyway, it'll come back to me. Uh, I'm saying Robert Williams, that, that's not it. But the idea is that when we begin to use their conversation and show how they are psychopathic, mm-hmm. using their own definition, right? right, then come to our own formation of what it means to be human and further estrange them from the notion of what humanity really is. I think then that we're doing a, a great service to uh, many people. Mm-hmm. However, many of, our, many of us want to go and protect Massa, uh, protect that which we have been conditioned to see as being superior to who we really are. So, you know, let's bring this forward to today since like this thing is gonna take a life of its own. Um, and one, I wanted to get to anyway, your, your thoughts on black men and mental health. And it should be black people in mental health, but focusing on black men for a particular reason um, in terms of the assault on black men um, by and large by society, right? And um, today is October 28th and a couple of days ago, there was another uh, police shooting in Philadelphia uh, of an unarmed black man. Um, what are your thoughts about tying that into the mental disorder, right? What are your thoughts about why these things are happening and what we need to do for our mental health? So one of the things that we recognize is that a group of people have determined who their open enemy is and they are willing to attack that enemy at all costs. They've also determined what they're willing to fight for. And so they have this false pretext of white supremacy. See, if you remove white supremacy from the the equation, what would they have to stand on? They have no identity. What have whites created in this country? I ask the question all the time that's made this country better. I ask the student, name, name five inventions that they've come up with. That, that you can think of off the top of your dome that makes this country better. Mm-hmm. Then I say, well, name, name two invented by black people. And you say, well, the one that comes to mind is the stoplight. Okay, let's, 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 let's pause on that one. A traffic light that is utilized all over the world invented by a black man here, but you can't come up with one thing that they have created that makes the world better, right? So they're always at this constant uh, mode of attack. I said, name name um, vegetables, fruits and vegetables. Name two that nourish your body that comes from Europe. Students struggle all the time. I said, let's name two or three to come out of Africa. They come up with some of some say, say the peanuts, some others come up with the black eyed peas, others, others, others mention the watermelon, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a space where you can't even draw substance from. That's why they were in Africa. Then name a population who cannot stand out in the sun without catching melanoma very quickly. And think about the fact that all things grow towards the sun. 
but you can't stand out in it. Oh yeah, you got a you got a real issue every day, every single day. You're out attacking people, right? So so they have never stopped their attack of their open enemy. And for them, the greatest enemy is the black man. So it becomes a man-on-man conversation. Because again, if you look at Dr. Wilson's work in the ISIS papers, the genetic annihilation of a population, if you want to reduce it down to that, uh, they are always preoccupied with the with the phallus of black men. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why when you talk about lynching and castration, uh, they would lynch and castrate. That means that if you thought about, and I, and the purpose of my, my, my penis is for procreation mm-hmm. and release of waste, mm-hmm. right? So you know that I'm dead. I'm not going to release anything else once I'm, I'm gone. Right. I can't procreate. But even in my death, right, as a black man, you were thinking about a black man's penis because you had to be thinking about that penis when he was alive. Right. So then you have these folks protesting this summer in summer 2020. And these white women were standing up outside of the White House with black dildos in their hand, saying, this is what you fear. What do they know that we have, we are theorizing, right? As psychologists, they are had they hold it in their hands. Like this was just the most amazing moment to me because it was, it was saying, this is exactly what Welsing was saying who that was deemed to be crazy, which is what we say as psychologists that you are concerned with the regenerative power of black men. Black men invent things that make the world better. Black men can procreate and expand. Uh, black men can do these things that seem to be superhuman on the basketball court, right? Change basketball, revolutionize it intellectually. Uh, change things, become a president of a country. I'm not going to talk about the policies that this person uh, propagated. I'm going to simply say that there was nothing that came up about Barack Obama that was controversial. Right. Right. I mean, it's not not the issue of the policies and what he did for black people. That's a whole other conversation. Right. Black men don't stay at home with their wives. His wife was there. Black men don't, don't take care of their children. His children were there. Black men and the families and the brothers broken down. His mother-in-law was there. He had two dogs, right? All of these things that that they suggest that we can't possibly have. Mm-hmm. So they were ca- they were castrated by his presence. And so come out of that, you see this aggression heightened up against black men to say that we still have power. And so there's this 45th individual who is uh, speaking, who's who's simply uh, marketing white supremacy Mm -hmm. and white terrorism. And so you have a George Floyd situation, which is a lynching, Mm -hmm. right? You have Ahmaud Arbery, which is a lynching, a lynch mob. You have this uh, Breonna Taylor and recent uh, individ- uh, 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 brother, um, Walter. You, this is the same process. And so this is a moment of reckoning for our sanity as black men to recognize that they have determined us as their open enemy. Mm-hmm. 
And so, once you recognize that, you say that, wait a minute, every morning I'm moving, I'm at war. Mm -hmm. It changes my psychology for the day. So I tell young men, why are you walking around with your pants sliding off your butt when you don't know what's about to go down next? You got on, you, you walk around with, 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 with slides and socks like you are, are you, are you at home kicking it? Or are you, are you in a classroom? Are you in the world doing things? Right. And so we are caught in this space of trying to figure out who we are because we are under constant attack and there's fatigue around that. Uh, your, your question, I was, I'm, I was a bit on to, to, to another issue. Yeah. Right? What can we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of the mental health, what do we do specifically as black men to take care of ourselves given all this that surrounds us? So we recognize that there is the situation where somebody's deemed us to be their open enemy. Mm -hmm. But the only reason why they keep coming is because they haven't won yet. That's the beauty of the entire process. Mm -hmm. because, of they, because they haven't won means that there's great power in who we are. So then our responsibility then is to surround one another, support one another uh, through this moment to not become uh, uh, jealous and uh, belittling of, of, of another uh, brother, but to look at ways of helping to build up one another, to, to be supportive, uh, to be uh, uh, instruments of power and peace in our families. So if you go down, I step up and I'm in the space. Uh, if I go down, you in my space, the idea that people are always seeing the presence of a, a, a black man taking a stand, right? So these are things that we do to maintain our sanity. But we have to recognize that somebody has deemed us an enemy, not that we see them as our enemy, they see us as such and uh, govern ourselves accordingly. The other thing is, is recognize the identity, the, our, who, who we come from. We recognize that we come from a great and powerful people, not that they were perfect, they were powerful though. And that that power is within us. And we recognize that we are the seed of a seed of a seed of a seed of the seed, that whatever is in us is always supposed to be here. So one of the questions that you were posing in the beginning was, now that I'm back at Grambling, what am I doing differently? I, when I came back to Grambling while I was writing my dissertation, I introduced two courses. One was uh, African Black Psychology. Another one was the Psychology of the Black Family. Those courses are still being taught today, 20 years later, which is amazing. Uh, Dr. Azibo added uh, two more courses, African, African centered personality and um, uh, African pioneers, uh, black psychology pioneers, which is a history and systems of, of uh, psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, every time we hit the classroom, we are hitting it from the perspective of a power position of our people as having great intellect, uh, having prowess. We, we eradicating the myths of our inferiority. Students say that we're dogmatic and rigid sometimes trying to push our views on, on them, but we challenge our belief systems. We challenge how we see our hair and how we see our skin. We challenge those things and show how they are psychologically disruptive to our being and that people are actually capitalizing off of our genius. These are things that we're doing and, we, and this, these, these are things that actually facilitate black men being uh, gaining some sanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So, Sounds like you're pushing a lot of critical thinking there. Indeed, mm -hmm. right? To be able to analyze what, what is good mm -hmm. about the hair, what is bad, right? right? And so beginning to challenge, as our, as our CT teachers taught us, right, the notion of what is Black normalcy, right? We don't have no idea right. 
what it means to normally be who we are. And I think that is something that impacts the mental health of, of our entire community. Because um, we are, in a lot of cases, working towards and trying to put on norms that mm. don't fit us. And, and so that's another form of dissonance on the other end of the spectrum, right? That's right. <laughs> another form of, of disease or, or self-hatred because we are trying to, and, and it's so funny, it's so interesting to watch. We're trying to be, a lot of us are trying to be like them and they're trying to be like us, going exactly. to panning machines, getting um, injections in their in their different parts of their butts or their, <laughs> their lips or whatever. It is like watching this play out is just amazing to me to, to just see people be comfortable with yourselves. And so one of the things I, I talk about a lot is self-love and how we can be comfortable with who we are, period. Um, and being able to have conversations, I think as black, I don't know if you're seeing this, but the, the need to carry this ideology of being strong and never letting them see you sweat. So you just hold everything in, which then causes you to explode at some point, as opposed to being able to talk about it, to connect with um, another brother and get it out, to, to unload this stuff, to unpack it, because we're all dealing with similar things. That, that is real critical, right? The idea of who do you trust enough, mm -hmm. right, to share what's going on with you because we are always on guard. So much so that we on guard with, with one another and that, that my enemy is another nigga. That nigga, that nigga's my enemy, right? That's not your enemy. Mm -hmm. The enemy is the enemy within that made him a nigga because a nigga maker makes a nigga and therefore that's the real enemy. The reason why you can call your nigga is the issue. So the challenge then is to get people to begin to recognize that, yes, you can release, you can let go. You, you don't have to be on guard around every person all the, at all times and, and share these things concern me. These things, I'm, I'm frightened by this, right? This, mm -hmm. this is not right. You're right, you're right. It is not right. Every, if the highest order of communication becomes make it home safely, that's not living in a space that's surviving a space like a, uh, a a mouse scurrying in a house trying to get back to the hole, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's high pressure. What does it mean to live like that day in and day out? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for these fathers to have to embrace the fact? Because think of the, uh, the brother that, that just died is Junior. I think uh, the one pre the, uh, previous one was Junior as well. Um, the one that was shot in the back. Mm -hmm. But now men are having to step up to the mic and, and cathart to actually have real feelings and at the same time have a show of strength of we need to have something done about this. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a balance in between the two. I'm hurt by it, but I'm not going to crackle in this space, but I need, to, I need you to know when I, when I got to talk to you, Brother Anthony, about it, that man, this thing really hurt me. Right. I'm having some real issues with this. Mm -hmm. Then you say, I got you. Then we get up and we go out and we hit the streets say, okay, now let's go take care of business because we've been nourished by coming together to support one another through a painful moment. That is okay mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to express oneself. Uh, so me, black men mental health is, is serious business because we believe that to have a mental health moment is a, is a show 
a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. That's beginning to shift. Yeah. Uh, as I, I've, I'm doing work with Doc, with, with uh, Taraji Hinchin and, 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 and the foundation. And so there's a, there was a call out for men in therapy. And the call out was for 200 men and they ended up being over 300 men that have reached out, right? So there's a shifting in how individuals are seeing uh, mental health and mental wellness. Uh, that is that, as a matter of fact, if you don't have your mental stability to get your factors together, you will do some things that are just jacked up mm. from the back up. And so mm. we talk about me, black men's health, not a white man's perspective of what health is, because if we use a European perspective of psychology, uh, therapy is like a cast to a broken bone. It provides the structure for the bone to heal. To heal. Mm -hmm. White European Eurocentric therapy is not the right structure for their healing because it's based on white normative values and reality. Right. So if you ask me to put a cast on your broken arm, it's probably gonna still be jacked up because you know, I didn't study physiology enough to know how to put a cast on properly. Right. Nor do white therapists understand the psyche of black people enough to be able to, to provide the proper structure. Mm -hmm. So the therapy that you provide and that um, I'm, I'm learning to provide is, is that which is grounded within the African sense of ethos, the values, the worldview mm -hmm. of who we are, how we function. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it informs us who we are. It empowers us to be who we are. So we don't have to recreate ourselves in the image and likeness of somebody else. And so something you said earlier, I thought was what, what was so powerful is that we try to become like that which is oppressing us. That's like the rape victim trying to get the rapist to like them. Right. Right. And we don't, we don't, we never recognize how insane that that is. Right. I don't have to become unlike myself to become like the oppressor, to be knowledgeable, to be, to be powerful in the world. As a matter of fact, that's my weakness is becoming like them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we talk about how you can be yourself that you come from a legacy of greatness. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So, as as you were, you were a past president of the Association of Black Psychologists, and as an organization, certainly me being a part of the organization, we're tasked to um, be the people, the bearers of uh, the culturally appropriate uh, mental health treatment, right? From our own perspective, where people don't have to explain what it is when they come in, they can just be. Um, talk about your vantage, from your vantage point, having been a president of such a, a large and powerful organization, the importance of spreading that message of uh, mental health for African folks in a way that is um, healing for us, in a way that lifts us up and puts us first. The idea of liberating the African mind, illuminating the African spirit, right? That's the foundation of the organization. How do we become the purveyors of the psyche of Black people? Uh, the beauty of the organization is proclaiming itself to be worthy enough to stand alone on its own and to determine what it means to be who we are. Mm -hmm. The next challenge was to establish a way of certifying ourselves. Uh, 
in the organization. So, so we started, of course, as the, the certification process. As you are part of the rituals committee, we normalize ourselves with various structures. You're part of the ethics committee as we have our own ethics grounded within African philosophy, talking about Ma'at, uh, going back at the ancient Kemet. So these things we use to determine what our humanity is, who the who see it. We don't have to go to the Greeks to do it. We go to our own uh, uh, coffers and we pull up this content. This is what the organization does, which is a psychologically normalizing process. Mm -hmm. Our next challenge is moving to the stage of certification to this idea of licensure. That's a major step because then we are able to now proclaim for ourselves, what does it mean to be us doing this work, not only with us, but doing this work in the world. Yeah. And that was that was the main piece that I wanted to push. And I keep pushing is that it's not, it's not just upset about how to work with black people, but in certification process, we're looking at how black people work and do this work. So we are affirmed in the way that we see things. So when I presented to my class that I cannot go and say, so what does that, how does that make you feel in my, in my community? And they, they, they became offended by it. I knew I, what I was talking about because I know how we function. And they told me that, that that was anecdotal data. Fast forward 25 years later, a couple was getting ready to come to me in therapy. And the wife says, black couple, says, my husband doesn't want to come to you because all you're going to do is ask him, how does it make you feel? Now, this is something I said 25 years earlier, right? right? So the point is that the organization like ABCI allows us to be able to utilize our own way of being in the world, how we think and conceptualize the reality. It affirms us in that. And then it allows us to go out and to be free and, and we have to grow up and get to licensure. And that's a major step uh, where we can license not only ourselves, but license others to do the work of our people. Mm -hmm. And others are looking to us, yeah. uh, but we are afraid to take those, take that stand. Mm -hmm. uh, for some, some reason, there's a fear. And I can, I can understand at some level the fear mm -hmm. uh, because there's a responsibility that comes with that, that has a legal a ramification to it. And then we understand that we don't control the legal systems, legal structures. And so that's a part of that, that fear. Mm -hmm. However, when we know that we stand on truth, we have no need to run from the truth. We stand in the truth and the truth will surround us and protect us with everything that we do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good. Very good. So we're, we're running out of time here. I want to give you an opportunity to just share what you would like to share about um, at this particular time, this particular space, we got this election coming up next week. Uh, well, it's going on now, but you know, the, the election day is next week and just the state of our society right now. Um, what would you offer in terms of uh, words of inspiration for um, our community as it relates to mental health? There is no greater time than now for us to own our identity, to stand in our truth, and to move with our power. There is no greater time than now to honor those that have gone before us, 
those that have loved, labored, lived, and died for our humanity. We often suggest that we need to go out and vote because our ancestors died for the right to vote. The problem with that statement is that they never died for the right to vote because a vote was always for somebody that didn't look like them. They died for the right to be human. Listening to Fannie Lou Hamer, she says, we did all of this so that we could be seen as human. It was always about humanity. It was not about the vote. It was not about that. It was about being seen as human by someone else. We have to recognize our own humanity. When people suggest that we're going to go out and vote and I ask the question, for what are you voting? People become irritated. So we're we not voting. It's not the question that I'm asking. The question I'm asking is, for what? Are you voting? Mm -hmm. Because when you begin to proclaim yourself as being a human being with rights and privileges that are due to you, mm -hmm. you put conditions on the table so that your vote comes with conditions. And that's the one thing that we lack is that we don't put the condition onto the vote. The elders told the girls, they still tell the, the females today, why is he going to buy the cow? when they get the milk for free, mm -hmm. right? We don't put a condition on the vote. We are a cheap date. People come around, they freak us every four years. Once they get a good one off, they leave us. And we're standing right there waiting, uh, trying to figure out what happened, hoping that they come back again, and they do. But there is no condition on our relationship. See, this is a thing that's, that's critical. I, I, I was trying to no better time than now. When we proclaim ourselves to be humans with power, then we know how to withhold our vote until the conditions that we have are on the table. Reparations, a condition, right? These are conditions that we put on the table, the idea of how we are treated uh, in the legal system. We put conditions on the table in education. We put conditions on the table around health care. We put the conditions on the table, not simply cast the vote and turn and walk away. But on the backside of that, our humanity will also call us to take a stand and to be able to start to create the conditions that we want to see in our lives. And that's going to be an investment on our part. How are we going to invest ourselves at this time of COVID-19 education. Don't just simply take children to school and, and turn, them, turn, 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 turn them loose. We're being taught now that we need to stop and educate our children at home. How do we come together while children are having to do this online stuff, the, the Zoom stuff, and it's failing our children? How do we create educational structure where they can get a new form of identity through what we can augment them uh, with in teaching? I'll give you this one. My uh, nephew in the first grade uh, here in this house with, with my mother is where I am right now in, in this space. She was doing homeschooling. She's an educator. She says an educational doctorate. She's seven, nine years old teaching him. And as I was listening from this vantage point of her teaching him nouns and sight words, 
the lesson was about this young man wearing a kilt and the the voice another character says a quilt no a kilt it's a dress that men wear and he was learning nouns and sight words at the same time as he was learning about the scottish irish culture right they wove it in there and another day he learned about egypt and blonde-haired people another day he learned about another phenomena and it was still about nouns and sight words but it was culture infused in the entire process we have an opportunity to do the same thing, to teach our children about who they are, to give them power in the world so they know how to be geniuses. We, we, this is the moment. This is the time. No greater time than now to put the conditions on the table because people are listening. People are watching. Uh, and the other thing is to be able to, to be accountable. Don't just simply throw the vote out there and turn and walk away but to be vigilant about what we do, right. who we are, how do we show up in the lives of our children, especially our children. Mm -hmm. They will be the ones that are gonna bring the change Indeed. in greater, greater measure. So, all right, well, this has been a great conversation. We're gonna to have to do a part two of this down the line because uh, there are some other questions I wanted to get into, but well, you know, it did what it did and we talked about what we needed to discuss here. And, um, I've enjoyed it, and I hope that um, everyone listening has. Can you say a little bit about how people can get in contact with you if they're so inclined? Uh, one of the things that we're doing, you mentioned, you mentioned this, and I just uh, bypassed it. I, I, I got to come back to it. This is something I got to tell you. Mm -hmm. I, I said I want to, I want to tell you about, it, so I'll tell you about it right now. Sure. We are looking at uh, doing the. Uh, we're starting a private practice in the Gambia, and uh -huh. so we're looking to take the work that we did in ABCI. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually would, it's, actually it's, it's backwards. We were, we're going over to, to facilitate licensure and certification mm -hmm. in, in the country in, in psychology. We're starting to practice there. We're looking at, at workforce uh, development with youth there and here. We're talking about taking youth there and, and from, from here, there, a major piece. But the point is that we are raising funds to do this great work in the area. And so it's uh, the, um, uh, the YouTube channel is called Speak Black to Me. Uh, there we, we have commentary on Speak Black to Me, and so that we can be reached there. We can be reached at uh, our, our private practice website of Nansapo Empowerment, N as in Nancy, Y as in Yankee, A as in Apple, uh, N as in Nancy, uh, S-A-P-O, Nansapo Empowerment. And, uh, and so that is, is a private practice website, but also um, Wata Speaks, M-W-A-T-A. Watcher Speaks is just what we talk about, the, the, that's the speaking work uh, that we do. And so that is tied to um, Watcher357 at gmail.com, M-W-A-T-A-357 at gmail.com. And then uh, I'm an old school person, so the phone number is 202-425-6681, 202-425-6681. And so these are the various mediums that we are simply doing the work but I'm really excited about the generating funds and resources through this uh, YouTube channel uh, to make a change uh, on the continent. Mm -hmm. And it ties into our, our people, ties into ties, ties in with our organization. Bobby Ifabimi or Dr. Wade Noble said, let's look at how we can put in the Pan-African licensing process. So we're looking at how we can do that. Uh, and so we're doing that 
put an idea out there, not necessarily with a B-side. We do, we, it's inspired by the organization. And then we will figure out how we can then rope everybody together uh, later. Uh, but it is an exciting time yeah, that's good to stuff. do this work. Yeah. Are you, do you all have plans to go there soon? Yes. So uh, I plan to be in the Gambia uh, throughout the month of December. I was supposed to leave in November, but there were some issues with the flight. So in December 2020, is, that's where we will be. We're going to interface with the Ministry of Health, the um, Department of Mental Health, as well as some other organizations and groups that are doing some powerful work around uh, uh, reconciliation, uh, healing, healing health. It's just a moment. We're also going to go into uh, connecting with individuals that are doing uh, herbal work, right? This uh, teas and stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the two things that we have occurring within this country, diabetes and, and hypertension, uh, many times we see that they can be uh, mediated with, with various herbs. And so uh, Meringue and others, uh, we're looking at, at people who are growing that on the continent. And we find that the things that we need for our bodies to function better actually come from the earth. Mm -hmm. And so we're in the wrong space because this is not our space. Right. So we're not getting the right substance. Mm -hmm. so we're looking at ways of getting, bringing products over mm -hmm. that can help to, uh, that have been proven to help with uh, diabetes and as well as uh, hypertension. And the brother that we're doing it with is a pharmacist. So imagine this pharmacist who makes money off of pharmaceuticals is really saying, look, I'm also into the, Herbs. So the company is called Anovarex uh, World Health. Anovarex World Health. Uh, the brother is Ishmael Baji. That's who we're partnering with. And so that is some exciting work that we're looking at healing of our people, not only uh, of the mind, but also uh, of the body. All in collaboration. That's, that's good stuff. Yes. That's good stuff. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah, I am too. So we have to talk offline about this as well. <laughs> Indeed. But um, all right, so thank you so much for um, enlightening us with your wisdom and your information here. This has been a great conversation and we're gonna keep pushing forward, doing what we need to do to bring our people out of these negative spaces into more positive spaces. We're gonna keep doing what we do. So again, we thank everybody for joining us um, and listening to our conversation, our dialogue. Hopefully you got something that inspires you to um, go out and do what you do that much better. So we'll sign off for now and we will see you all or talk to you all in our next session. Peace and blessings, everybody. In closing, I want to remind you to always be a critical thinker as it relates to your mental health and well-being. We always want to inspire you to consciously question your choices to ensure that you are doing those things that bring you happiness and fulfillment. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel and share the information with others who might benefit. Connect with us on Twitter at HeartMindHealer and visit our Facebook and Instagram pages at Alashe Center, A-L-A-S-E Center. Our website is Alashe.net. A-L-A-S-E dot net. And feel free to contact us for any consultations or questions you might have. Things that I might be missing Running too fast to stop to listen